Hey, Stephanie, how are you doing today? Hey, Roderick, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, doing pretty good. Well, to everyone listening, today we have a Stephanie Graham with Graham Estate Planning. We're so just happy to have you here. We appreciate you taking time out to spend some time with us today. So it's come along pretty good, you say? It is, it is. It's hump day, so I made it. I get it, I get it. Now, before I get started and get into my uh, process here, what is going on with the owl slash uh, pineapple behind you there? What's up with that? <laughs> A good question. My daughter drew that. Okay. She is an artist, and that's one of her earlier works. And um, her work actually hangs in the High Museum at least once a year through her school. Nice. The High Museum. That's big praise there. Okay. Mm -hmm. We got an artist. We have a, a Monet maker. Going yes, on wait for her to support me. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, we appreciate you coming on today. You know, the, the reason why we started doing this is to help continue to bring value to our clients, our referral partners, and make sure that we are a resource that they can come to, not just for the business service that we provide, but just as a connector in itself. And doing Burn the Ship podcasting, we try to find out what your why is. We want to figure out you know, who you are, you know, what got you to the point of doing what you're doing, because the estate planning that you're providing for people is excellent, excellent business service, but they have a bunch of options that they can choose when it comes to that. We want to promote why should they uh, come to you for that service. So today we're just going to ask a few questions, learn a little bit more about you and, and why you do what you do. If you don't mind sharing with us, where are you from? Well, I was born in the Bronx um, and I lived there until I was about eight or nine years old. And then I went to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And the day I graduated uh, high school in South Carolina, I zipped right back to New York okay. and, um, and ended up in Georgia about 15 years ago. OK. OK. So let's break that long. You were born in the boogie down, which is awesome. Yep. I couldn't wait to say <laughs> that for the first time in my life. And then. <laughs> Charleston, Charleston, that's a big difference coming from New York to Charleston. Um, it was a little bit slower or what was that experience uh, going from New York to South Carolina? Um, it was like you said, it was different. I was a child and I had no idea why I was suddenly in South Carolina, mm -hmm. um, but it was very different. Um, it is a slower pace. Um, it's definitely a slower pace. Um, the diversity for me was exactly the same, mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not. So sometimes I wonder about what's going on today because, uh, you know, I'm not going to date myself too much, but mm -hmm. he had, you know, all types in my school, you mm -hmm. know, um, mm -hmm. Hispanics, you know, we have everything. Um, yeah. We always had interracial relationships and I want to say how far out of school I am. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but, you know, everybody was, you know, pretty friendly time, you know, packed. It's the same school as now. I guess you have the mean girls, you have the nerds, mm -hmm. you have the athletes, mm -hmm. uh, pretty much the same. And I was the nerd. Okay. Um, okay. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Honor, National Honor Society type. I'm cool with that. Yep, I'm that cool with me. that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Now, yes. be, going from New York, and you guys had your own cuisine there. And then when you come down to South Carolina, because I went to school, I went to Savannah State. So I know a little bit about the... Uh, the low country over there. So yeah. did you ever learn how to cook Hoppin' John's while no. you were down there? No, <laughs> no, no, no I have no desire. No, <laughs> I think Southern food will kill you. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Not all the way. I'm still here. I've had it my entire life. You know, it's not too bad, but I love, see, I love times a year, Christmas, Thanksgiving. Yeah. 
yeah. and maybe my birthday. Okay, <laughs> I got you. I got you. That's a good deal because that's one of the big things that I picked up from uh, living there on the coast mm-hmm. was the Hoppin' Johns was different. Never had that before. Mm-hmm. And then Conk had that. That was mm-hmm. different. All the different seafood. So I was just saying, what was your what was your cuisine that you picked up? What's the best thing you learned how to cook while you were down there in South Carolina? Um, I really didn't have to cook much, but I can tell you, I am a bread person, okay. and I love cornbread. Okay, uh, I love Texas toast. I just love any type of bread. I took my sister to Capitol Grill for her uh, 50th birthday the other day, okay. and I like the whole bread basket. <laughs> I get that. So I don't keep it in the house. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So one thing we have learned so far, Stephanie loves bread, which is awesome. Cornbread. That's that's cool. That's cool. So you left South Carolina. You went back up to New York. Did you go into the workforce at that time? Uh, did you go to school? How, what does that look like for you? I went back to work. So I, w- I started working. Well, I started volunteering since I was 14 years old uh, on my during my summers in New York, because every summer we went back to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, at 16, I started a paid job through high school. Mm-hmm. And then so when I graduated, I graduated at 17 and I started working in um, my youngest jobs were in retail. Okay. And that's when I learned to this day, I respect retail is because that is an extraordinary amount of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't keep the stores today the way they used to when I was a kid, mm-hmm. but it's an extraordinary amount of work. I used to work in what um, was learners, which is New York company today. Okay. Okay. Uh, nice. I remember learners. shops and I made it all the way to assistant manager. And I was like, this is too much work for this little bit of money. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> oh, I get it. So I was the nerd who always had a list of jobs that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I tried them all and so my uh last one pre-law was banking okay and um and i loved it so i started as a teller Mm -hmm. um and i worked in banking uh for either five and a half or six and a half years in um two different banks um i think i was in one for a year and a half and the other for five and i'm still uh close friends with my manager and um one of our mortgage reps who i actually spoke on his um his uh, Facebook page, he is the creator and founder of Buy Black for Life with 172,000 members. All right. So I was a guest with him on Saturday and we worked together in the bank and it was a long time ago. So he is now a certified financial planner. Okay. And I'm an attorney. And so while I was in banking, um, I started to go to school in banking because my mother was kind of like, you need to go to school. And I was like, why? I'm making, you know, I'm making $22,000 a year. Why do I need mm-hmm, to go? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You're 20 years old. So um, I went, but I continued to work. And um, so I often uh, worked and went to school, uh, took my time, you know, was on the dean's list because I really loved my job. And um, at some point I made it, you know, uh, I guess two levels below management. You know, there's a a head teller. You know, I managed a half a million dollar um, cash bank. I had to order the cash, count the cash. And then there's branch ops and then there's management. And back then, um, no one who worked in a bank for just five, six years would ever make manager. And I was always the type of kid and adult that took the books home for everything like um one of my jobs, my high school job, was making corn dogs. All right. And I, I took the manuals home so I could learn how to make the best corn dogs. The manual? Come on I now. Did. You had so to through, dip it so in the... Yes. No, no. See, it's a twist. It's the oh. flick of your wrist because they had cheese dogs back then. Okay. They don't make them today. They okay. had cheese dogs, and if you didn't flip it up right... 
The hey. cornbread would slide down off the cheese before it properly cooked. Oh so you my had goodness! See, look at that attention to detail, everyone. Yes. So you know, if you come across, she's going to make sure that your corn dog is fried properly. So exactly. she's going to make sure. Exactly. She's going to make say, sure. I, I don't want to hurt right. your feelings, but that word is not spelled correctly. Okay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, listen, that's good though. That's good. Yeah. We've we've learned that. Uh, you saw the education was important as you were coming up. You focused, uh, mm-hmm. you know, self-proclaimed nerd, which is awesome. And mm-hmm. then even as you look at the other jobs that you've been doing, you focused on making sure to be ahead of the curve and have a great attention to detail. So you were a couple steps under manager. And then what happened from there? Well, they, they didn't have anything else to teach me. And mm-hmm. I am the type of person that needs to learn all the time. Like even in um, elementary and high school, like they broke or I broke the rules or they changed the library rules for me because you were only allowed to check out five books at a time. But I read books so fast they had to allow me to take out more. So if I'm not learning, if there's nothing else for me to learn, I get bored and um, it's time for me to go. So I always thought law school would be something I do, you know, in my second career in my 50s. And um, I was bored. So I said, well, if you guys aren't going to promote me, because I was used to being promoted all the time since I was very young. So I said, well, I guess I'll apply to law school. You know, what else am I supposed to do? So um, it's funny, the day that I resigned to attend law school because I was accepted and I was waitlisted and everything, but I got in mm-hmm. and um, they said, oh, we have a promotion for you. I was like, too late. I'm going to law school. Right, right, <laughs> right. Too late. I'm on to the next thing. Yep. So, Well, that's cool. So when you got ready to go into law school, did you have an idea of what it is you wanted to focus on or did you have an experience throughout your college career that made you go into one lane? So because of the type of work that I experienced, um, I did focus on business management and human resources. I learned mm-hmm. a lot. And um, I often wonder what they teach people today, because, you know, back then they taught you how to shake a hand. They taught you how to have a conversation. They ta- taught you how to dress like, you know, how today people somebody might go to a job interview for Target and they think it's appropriate to actually wear the polo shirt and khakis to the job interview. That's not appropriate, which is why you're not getting that job. And I learned all that um, when I was young. Um, so I had the business management background. I did not have the typical uh, lawyer background. Um, when I went to law school, it was, in fact, I will tell you, I started out with account- with computer science because I loved um, data and programming. Mm-hmm. And then after one semester, I said, this is not for me. And then I always scored high in math. I was trigonometry, pre-calculus. So I went for accounting and I said, okay, I don't like numbers that much, apparently. Mm-hmm. Makes <laughs> and sense. then from accounting, I went to um, uh, business management with a minor in human resources. Okay. So business, yeah. ma- so business management, that is a different path. Mm-hmm. Um, so business management, and this is when you were in school to be an attorney? You did no, both that, was that was undergrad. That was undergrad. Okay. Okay. Yes. So... With your um, law degree, I want you to share with us, what is the longest study time that you did? Was it 24-hour cram, 48-hour cram? What was that study looking like for that test or exam that you had to take? Well, um, I have to say me and my um, my little group, we made sure that we worked out and celebrated birthdays so we didn't suffer some of the challenges a lot of other people mm-hmm. suffered, but you always crammed. But I had this gift of being able to 
figure out what would be on the exam just because the way the topic is laid out, there are only certain things they could test you on. So I would always know what, what what's going to be tested. So we pretty much cram that area the night before, but they would have these um, study guys also. If you, if you get with, you know, um, classmates who came from a generation of attorneys, um, they have um, sample exams that, you know, they keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you it. become friends with the right people, um, they have these study guys that have passed on from, um, you know, generation to generation. But yeah, you would study um, and not necessarily the case law because case law is what you were expected to read, you know, during the week for um, the Socratic method where they called it teaching you um, how to think. But really, for most of us, first generation, it was to embarrass you. <laughs> OK, OK, OK. You know? And um, but yeah, studying, you, you pretty much crammed and you had a study group and because you needed that support because, you know, a lot of people don't make it. Um, through law school, they tell you on day one, um, look to left, look to the right, because one of you will not be here in a year. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. So they went yeah. ahead and, and let you know this is not oh, going to be an easy know. journey, huh? Yes. And um, and they are difficult. But yeah, you cram. But I think the key is, you know, everybody puts on that weight in the first year. And I think the key is to find a way to um, limit your stress. So I think um, it was law school prevented me from being able to wear contacts on a daily basis because of all the reading. Okay. Makes sense. You have to read so much. So I used to wear contacts all the time, but after law school, I couldn't wear contacts Just glasses only? I can wear them temporary, but I cannot wear them consistently anymore. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So you guys are picked up, you know, she is head of the class. So she's super intelligent. She's focused on uh, the details and making sure that everything is in order. And one of the biggest things that I just learned is you understand how important it is to build relationships and know the correct people. Because we can have all the types of skills, intelligence that we that we can possibly have, but if you don't know the proper people, or at least know the process of getting yourself in front of the right people, then you're missing out on a lot because your path was a lot easier because you were willing to build relationships with people who already had those uh, walls knocked down. So, so you're getting through school, you got with the right crowd, and then you graduated, and then what happened from there? So I can go back just for a smidgen, just because it explains a little more how I got here mm-hmm. from um, what I observed in the bank more often than not is that we had a lot of elderly um, customers who had financial um, powers of attorneys who were often their favorite grandchild. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, the favorite grandchild would wipe out um, granny's account. And, you know, being young, I, I didn't understand it. And I used to run to my manager and, I, and I'd run to Tom. Every time it happened, I would say, Tom, why can't we do anything about this? I said, I don't understand why it's okay for him to just come in and wipe out granny's account. And he would say, because of the power of attorney. And I never forgot that. So that was part of the reason I went to law school. Um, that is part of estate planning. I had no idea what it was called at the time. But uh, once I went to law school, you are exposed to this wealth of knowledge. And you just, for me, I just wanted to learn everything. And I have to say, I honestly completely forgot all about um, estate planning. Um, I went through a stage where I wanted to do employment law, um, but nobody would hire me. And then um, I worked with the FDIC, which was an awesome uh, internship. And um, they actually offer uh, internships for certain uh, groups, but... um, I didn't know about it at the time. And I also had the opportunity to work on the New York City Charter where I actually was able to change the code for the city, which was one of my summer jobs. 
And then in law school, I interned with two federal judges who both were Duquesne grads. And if you check it out, most of the judges in Pennsylvania graduated from um, my law school, which was Duquesne University School of Law. So fast forward, you know, graduating law school basically teaches you or trains you to take the bar exam, it does not train you to be an attorney or practice law. However, I did um, excel in moot court. Nice. And this is a funny story. Okay. Um, so I was terribly, terribly shy. Nobody believes that. I was like the doormat kind of shy as a child. Like my mother would have parties and dance because that's what you did in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And I'd be the 20 year old holding on to the basement rails, looking through the rails oh, <laughs> like a goodness. child watching my mother dance. Right. I right. wouldn't even dance. So um, I'm a first generation lawyer. I did not know any lawyers personally. Um, so when they told me uh, after the first year of law school that I had to do this thing called moot court, okay. that I, and I had to stand up in front of a bunch of strangers and argue a case, and I said, I, ha- I have to drop out. I can't do this. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and I'm telling you, in my first argument, I was so sick. <laughs> oh, no. Yes, I was physically ill. I had to keep, you know, excusing myself. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, I ended up being the vice president of the moot court board and oh, the, really? um, getting appointed to the honor society for moot court. So what, so what helped you with that? What helped you to get past it? Cause that is a debil- debilitating fear that a lot of people have even to do what we are doing right now, just have a conversation. What, what made you get past that particular point? Well, I'm not a quitter mm-hmm. and um, I'm very competitive. <laughs> I'm very competitive. Uh, one of the things that got me through law school was racquetball. Okay. And uh, me and my roommate played every day and we whipped everybody's butt. Nice. Uh, so I'm very competitive. I don't like to quit. I do not like to lose. And I saw other people doing it. And my attitude is if they can do it, I can do it too. Mm-hmm. And if you tell me I can't do something, I'm probably going to beat you twice. <laughs> I get it. I Hey, listen, I understand. I played sports my entire life. So I definitely have that same mindset. So you, yeah. you were like, okay, I'm going to overcome this fear, although it's something that is making me physically ill. Yes. You know, I'm going to face that, stand in front of it and then overcome it. So you became mm-hmm. the vice president of Moot? Moot, Moot Court Honor Moot Society. Court. Okay. Basically, they, I knew they you were Honor you Society. A I knew case it. example, and you have to argue in on. And if that's not bad enough, mm-hmm. you have to learn both sides of the argument. One, one, in one round, you are the plaintiff, and the other round, you are the respondent. So we are trained right, right. <laughs> to argue and support both sides. On both sides. Well, that I guess that helps you, though, because that gives you an idea of what you're going to be up against. If Absolutely. you're the prosecutor, you, you know what the defense may throw. And if you're on the defensive side, you got an idea of how they're going to approach you or your, attack your client. So you're kind of able to uh, focus and be ready for whatever. So I guess I can see the I can see the purpose of that. So right now we're the vice president. And we're about to get you're in New York at the time or where's this is this? still in um, law school. And I um, with the success in moot court and competing, I also took two years of um, trial advocacy. OK. Um, and I took advanced legal writing. So with that, <clears throat> when I graduated and went back to New York, mm-hmm. my writing helped me excel um, through everything, my writing and the details. So my first job was with the district attorney's office. I had no intentions of being a prosecutor i don't even know if i knew what a prosecutor was i mean we did have to take we did take criminal law and most people exposed to criminal law the first time pretty much want to know well what if your what if your client is guilty mm-hmm. and what they teach you is you don't ask <laughs> you never ask you 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 protect yeah. your client because yeah, they have sense. a right to counsel but yeah. you never ask them if they committed the crime um 
so yeah, so I ended up working in a prosecutor's office, pro probably because my my stepfather um, was a member or uh, he was chief of staff or city council member. So I couldn't get a job anywhere that I wanted. None of the government jobs that I had interned with, you know, the FDIC, National Labor Relations Board, you know, hundreds of us are looking for jobs mm -hmm. all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I got an offer at the district attorney's office and I turned out to be very good at it, but mostly I'm good at everything just because I'm detail oriented. I will study the books and I will go, you know, I don't work just nine to five. I go home and I study everything. And um, so I ended up um, making team leader, um, which in the Bronx DA's office, that's a big deal. And essentially it meant I had the pleasure of now um, assigning 300 cases a day oh, <laughs> to Yes, to a team of 10 people, and then I was responsible for training those 10 people. Okay, so 30 yeah. cases. 300. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking, if it's only 10, that's that one attorney has 30 cases, and then you got to teach them how to work each case, or at least how, what was that responsibility for you? Yes, well, keep in mind, they, they receive 30 cases a day. So oh, on average, day. They, we actually had 200 cases. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay. And the training was great because I like to tell people, because, uh, you know, subsequently I worked for Fulton DA's office in Georgia, and the Bronx District Attorney's office was the best training ever. There, there are a lot of people who think government lawyers are incompetent, and they have no idea that private lawyers are learning on your dime. No one is training them, mm -hmm. but with government attorneys, they do not send you out into the world with one of their cases without training you. So the Bronx District Attorney's Office um, literally puts you in a classroom for 30 days and does not allow you um, to leave uh, until you have that 30-day program. And now, and I remember the, um, the trainer who still works in the Bronx DA's office today, you know, spitting out the the New York Penal Code like it was something she did every day, obviously. And I said, I'm never going to be able to do that. But you know what? I did do that. Right. And I still know most of the penal code. And um, that was um, over two decades ago. So um, yeah, so they train you. And then once you go into court, you are actually surrounded by um, six to 10 um, senior colleagues. Okay. Um, they do not let you go to court by yourself. And I, I think it's the best, I mean, of course I have not been all over the country, but for me and my diverse experience, it was the best training I've ever had in my life. And so I can't remember how long they stay with you, um, but they stay with you for quite a bit. It, it might be one month, it might be three months, at least this is what they did back then. Right. And, and it's amazing because, you know, they, they're used to it. They know how the judges are. They know how to defense, you know, they know all the protocol. You're not going in blind not knowing you know what you're doing and i remember the first time a judge screamed at me i was so stunned because i was like i've never had anyone scream at me right like right like so what is this right and i think they could my colleagues could see i was going to cry i was going to start <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness so they kept talking to me and they pretty much surround you with it's, it's like you know how in the african culture they just surround you in mm -hmm. like your village yep. and they just surrounded me and they kept talking to me and i never forgot that yeah and no judge has ever had that effect on me since and right. um so it was incredible what happens after some time though you know you're looking at your file and you're walking up to the podium and you turn around and ask a question and suddenly they're all gone <laughs> oh yes the training went away the found they what? are all gone the yeah. best training in the world because yeah. you would think you can't handle it but you can't right um because what happens is as i'm sure you learn sometimes we have a habit of um 
you know, you know what you're doing, right? But when there's someone else around you who's been doing it longer, I don't care what the job is, right? You defer. And they have the experience. You automatically assume you don't know what you're doing. That's right. It's a huge struggle in a state plan. You assume that you don't know what you're doing, even though you know you study ten times more than everyone else. I believe everyone goes through that. So. Want, they have to leave you like that in order for you to go into your own brain reserves and realize, I know this stuff. I absolutely. know it very well. It, absolutely. Um, best training in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, the same, it's the same way here. You know, I have the responsibility of being the sales director and we make sure that everyone knows how to do what we do, right? We, yes. we make sure they read these manuals, they look at these statements, they figure out how to best help people. But mm -hmm. when I go into that meeting with them, Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden it's like, whoop, like I forgot everything. <laughs> He's going to be judging me. And it's the same thing yesterday. You know, our founder for the first time yesterday, I went cold calling with him. Now we just went to lunch mm -hmm. and then we, I've never pulled the door with him once. Mm -hmm. And he said, come on, let's go do it. And I said, okay, let's go. Now I am pretty confident in what I know how to do. You know, I've been mm -hmm. doing it for seven years, but it's mm -hmm. the same thing that you said. I automatically defer to what he said and what he did because he is the senior, you know, here. So therefore I was like, am I confident in what I'm doing? I know what I'm doing. He, he brought me on to train these younger people to know what they're doing, but it's the same thing, but that is the best training. And that is what I want people to know. Not only are you meticulous on the details? You're really focused because, again, intelligence is important because mm -hmm. you read a lot, so you know a lot, so you can have mm -hmm. the the different pieces of information to help that case strong. You are mm -hmm. actually trained by the government. I didn't think about it until you said it right now. If you come straight out of law school and you jump into private practice, there's no one to teach you. And for every hundreds of dollars that I pay per hour for you, it's actually on the job training. You're trying to figure it out where you've had the background of not only working in New York City or New York, but then also coming down to Fulton County. So mm -hmm. you came down to Fulton County, you were doing something similar to what you were doing in New York. Yes. Um, after I left the DA's office after uh, three and a half years, because I, like I said, I like to learn and I didn't want to be pigeonholed for the rest of my life as a prosecutor. So I went to a civil practice firm for two and a half years. Okay. And then I went through some uh, challenges, um, you know, I went through a divorce okay. and then I relocated uh, to South Carolina for two years just to recoup. And then when I was ready to go back to work, I came to Atlanta and, um, so I was not ready to work for a few years. Um, that was intentional. I just wanted to take some time off and figure out what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did explore the courts and everything while I was here. Okay. And I um, spent most of the time with my daughter and I really didn't want to do anything that was going to affect her um, you know, her daily routine. So once she was, I felt comfortable with her going to daycare at two, I started um, looking for work. So I worked at Austin and Bird for about three years in the antitrust um, litigation department because I um, did antitrust in the civil litigation firm, mm -hmm. had the pleasure of working with the Teamsters Union. So I learned a lot about Monopoly, um, which is how I feel about Apple, but that's another story. Yes, <laughs> I understand. I understand. But, I have two so of them right here. when I finally here. started working for a more substantive position, uh, Austin and Bird was, was amazing. It was great. I met a lot of wonderful people there who are now solo practitioners, but I stayed there for three years because, you know, back then, um, I think they trusted employees more. 
okay. uh, back then. Uh, you know, they didn't, you didn't have to clock in. Like if I wanted to go in at six in the morning, because my daughter was on this six to six routine for years till she was out sixth grade. So if I wanted to clock in at six, seven o'clock in the morning and leave at three, nobody cared as long as I got the work done. They trusted us to get the work done. And mm-hmm. if you want the work um, home, uh, for a few hours, they trusted in you were able to control your salary. But once I left that environment as the work dried up there and started looking for a job, I could not get a job because everyone said I was overqualified. Right. Um, so I could not get a job in a private firm. I did not want to prosecute anymore, but I ended up prosecuting again because that was the only job that would hire me. In fact, I was um, uh, interviewing with the Fulton County Attorney's Office, which is civil work. And the Fulton District Attorney's Office, which is right across the street from each other. And of course I wanted the civil job, but they did not want to make a decision between me and another person, even though I had the most licenses. Um, So I made the decision for them, but it also probably didn't help me when they um, said that they had a heavy caseload and I asked them what they considered a heavy caseload and they told me 20 cases. I started laughing because again, I came from an environment where we had 300 cases. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So 20 cases is considered a high caseload here. And um, so anyway, I went to the district attorney's office and I stayed there for five and a half years. And um, it started out pretty good, um, but then I went through a major car accident and went through a lot of challenges. Not sure of the why, but the way I see it now, I had to go through what I went through there because I went through some stuff there in the Fulton DA's office and laid in the cab office that got me here today. Okay. Um, my position is if I had the perfect loving job, I would have become comfortable and I would not have left. But the fact is I've never stayed at any job more than five years because if you can't teach me anything else or if you won't let me, you know, again, I was pigeonholed there. And um, so people had no idea what my experience was. I think the presumption was I was a baby lawyer because I looked so young and I was in a unit, a unit that baby lawyers work in. So a lot of people assumed mm-hmm. I was a baby lawyer and they had no idea. I had eight or nine years experience before I started working there, but it was okay with me. You know, right. I, it's all about my daughter. Yeah. So yeah, they can, under, they can, under, the they can underestimate you. That's more than fun. That helps us to win yes. a lot of battles because yes. people don't look at us like, okay, this, that, and the third. So I definitely yeah. understand that. They, they think that, you know, hey, because they carry themselves this particular way, this is how they are. They just don't know we have so much information packed inside of us. So it seems as if you were getting a little tired of working for the government, the city. And then if you don't mind sharing with us, what is what was that experience that you had to say, OK, I'm going to step out here and open up my own firm? What what was that that made you do that? The experience that I, and I always say it, it was my experience. I cannot, I know most people have not had this experience. I know at least one other person substantially younger than me that went through the same thing. My impression was, you know, I came from an environment where they were used to, they wanted people who were who were creative and had initiative and had ideas. Um, the impression I got here is that if you showed initiative and, you know, had opinions and had ideas that, um, I, I hate to use this word intimidated, but I was never trying to steal anyone's job. I'm just trying to make the job better for all of us. Right. And so I kind of felt like I went through that in every area. Even with the, um, when I left Fulton, I had these part-time gigs in the city offices. At some point I was always thrown under the bus for something and I never knew. Right. So 
the last time with the Fulton days office, I just got to the point. I just don't want to do this anymore. It's just too much drama. Like, I mean, I couldn't find a job anywhere and I just left. I mean, okay. I just left. I said, I can't do this anymore. Right, right, right. And I, I was tired of people screaming at me like I was a child. And, um, and so I think the last time uh, someone was screaming at me and I just sat there talking to God in my head and he said, well, sleep on it. <laughs> And I slept on it and resigned the following day. Next, no, the next day <laughs> you no take no, no time. I no job. A lot no of people prospects. did not know that. I okay. did not have a job when I quit the district, the Fulton District Attorney's Office. I didn't know what I was going to do. Right. But I'm a survivor and I knew I would survive. So um, I had been looking for a new job for three years. I could not find one. I quit on a Monday. And by Friday, I had three job offers. Okay. Okay. Hey, listen, you're always put in a position to succeed if you have confidence in yourself and faith that you can go forward. So yes. this this next round, because this is before, so I'm assuming this is before Grand Estate Planning. You yes. came, who'd you come on with, the private practice or who was this? So um, that's when I started doing the solicitor gigs um, okay. in the various cities like Sandy Springs, um, Dunwoody. And I did that for a year. And then at some point when my hours dropped, I um, panicked and I went to the DeKalb DA's office and went through the same, the DeKalb solicitor and felt like I went through the same thing, the, mm -hmm. these unreasonable challenges. And right. I, after a year I left there, went back to um, the part-time gigs. And then after three years, I guess it boils down to, um, you know, I could have stayed there forever because if you know anything about Georgia, there, aren't a, there isn't a lot of representation for African-Americans in the legal field. And I'm on North Fulton side. And I stayed a very long time because I was always the only black solicitor and the courtroom was 90% black. Mm -hmm. And every time I was ready to leave, I felt like I needed to be here to help. Right. So at some point, um, there was a replacement. And I just said, you know, rather than argue, I said, you know what, I've been here too long. It's time for me to go uh, focus on my practice. So I had established my practice about a year eight months after I left the, um, the cab office because my grandmother actually passed away while I was uh, working for the cab. And I think it was the Thanksgiving of 2015. And I'd just been at that job for about three months. And they actually told me that I had not been on the job long enough to accumulate the time to go to my, you know, my <laughs> grandmother's funeral. Oh, and I'm the type of person that I mean, I went through something similar in Fulton where my sister had an aneurysm and they said, well, you don't have the time. You can't go. And I just go. If you're going to fire me because I choose to be at my family's side when they are injured, that's your issue. It's not my issue. So right. I went to my grandmother's funeral, um, lasted at that job for another eight months with some ridiculous challenges. And I said, you know what? I'm going to start my st I actually sat down and said, you know what? I don't like practicing law in Georgia. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I sat down and I really had to have a long talk with myself. I talked to myself quite a bit. We have great conversations. <laughs> we, and what I discovered we. is, guess what, Roderick? I uh -huh. went to law school to do estate planning. What happened to estate yeah, planning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my grandmother died. So that, you know, that kind of was the kicker. It, and even yeah. though, yeah, that was the kicker. And I, my family doesn't really talk about it, but I saw how it affected them. Mm -hmm. You know, Southerners. They, we bury everything with, like you said, the hopping John. Nobody talks about what goes on. They just, they become tense and the associations change, but no one will ever t tell you to your face mm -hmm. um, what happened. So with my grandmother, when she passed away, my grandmother has five girls and three boys. Um, one of my uncles had already passed. Um, a second one was already in um, a nursing home. Um, and my 
my mother and her sisters, they were all, you know, they're all vibrant and everything. And so they, of course, took turns taking care of my mother, my grandmother. But one of them had all the access to the bank account and wouldn't tell anybody else. Oh. The other one was there, you know, 24 seven and felt like no one helped her and, you know, um, has issues with her back to this day that she blames on that. But she never told them. But I know all this. Right. right. And then the, the other one, my mother, she owned several businesses, so she couldn't be there all the time. So she would sometimes pay for help. She got criticized for that. So you had all of this going on because the fact is grandma didn't have a plan. And the five of them had to get together and make a plan. And it caused a lot of stress because nobody had a plan. You didn't have an instruction book. And I never forgot that. And it was, um, she died a week before Thanksgiving. And my birthday falls on Thanksgiving every, every five years. And we used to all get together for Thanksgiving and say happy birthday. We haven't done that since my grandmother passed away. Right. Um, I don't think they even realize that we haven't done that since Since my grandmother passed away. Everyone says they're busy and everyone has their own individual Thanksgiving. But before grandma, we all got together Mm -hmm. and had it in one person's house. And um, so I never forgot that. And um, and so me, my family and I are distanced for different reasons. But I my goal is for other families to understand Estate planning is not for rich people. I feel like um, middle-class people need it, need it a lot more because no one wants to pay attorney's fees, but the wealthy can afford those attorney's fees. Mm-hmm. But what no one ever talks about in all the books about estate planning and wealth planning and generation is they don't talk about how it affects the family emotionally and financially. And I think people need to talk about that more. Um, you just have no idea what happens to your family. And um, my best favorite example is, um, and I know time is probably out, but you know, you have somebody in your house that is always screaming about where's the toilet, we're out of toilet paper or we're out of paper towels or where's the toothpaste. And there's always the other family member who always says it's in the same place where it always is. And, but you always have that argument every two to three weeks where imagine um, that person asking for the toothpaste and the paper towels and the person who usually responds is no longer there. Imagine mm. that feeling. Right, right. Makes okay. a lot of sense. And that that is the nail on the head because now they have that deer in the headlight feeling and you're gone. You didn't even leave a will to tell them what, what am I supposed to do? If they couldn't find the toilet paper without you, how do you expect them to be able to move on without you? Right, right. It makes a lot of sense. I've always just... I didn't think about that second level of the family Mm -hmm. and how that part stops. I thought about, okay, there's assets, there's land, there's money. You know, the bickering and the fighting starts because it's up in the air and I should have this because I did this or I pay Mm -hmm. for this. So I deserve this. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about the dissension that it, you know, puts into a family. Yes. And. Obviously, it happens all the time because that matriarch holds it together because, you know, they're uh-huh. stronger women and yes. they held everyone together. And once that left, not uh-huh. only didn't, you know, not just your family, but many families where it just stops. And then you add on top of that, we're f- upset about money, you know, that uh-huh. just breaks it up. So that's part of the why that I want to pull out of here of Mm-hmm. what you do and how you help people, not just the financial aspects of it, but if all of that is in order, it actually mm-hmm. helps to hold that family together. So, you know, diving into that, looking like it's not just necessarily older people that are your target, mm-hmm. who would you say is your target client mm-hmm. and, and who you're trying to get in front of? Um, I would love to get in front of more of the 
the younger people. And when I say younger, the millennials are the largest class right now. They're making more money than their parents and their grandparents ever made, um, but they don't have wills. Um, there's also single parenting has gone up. And what people don't know about estate planning is not only is it about the assets, as you mentioned, it causes custody battles. Okay. Yeah. Custody battles for all of the single parents who don't have a document in place, your child is going to end up in a custody battle if you don't put something in writing as to who you want to take care of your child. That is the biggest thing I want people to get. Um, the child is the one who always pays when you have young children. Of course, when they're about 14 and older, they are allowed to make their own decision, but that doesn't mean that someone isn't going to cause a court battle. And keep in mind that um, court is how people grieve. Their, their anger, that's their grief. They don't even realize that they're doing it until a year later. I've had several people reach out to me a year later and apologize for their behavior. I never take it personally, but, you know, it's the opposition. They're attacking the other person. You know, these step blended families where you've had these step parents for 35, 40 years. When somebody dies, that t that tie is severed because there is no all because there's no will. Yeah. All because yeah. there's no will. Yeah. Um, so that's what I want people to get. If you have children. Um, you need to get your plans in order. And if you have elderly parents, you need to get your plans in order because just like I mentioned about the banking story, at some point they are going to lose their faculties and it's going to be too late for you to get those papers in order. And then you're going to have to go to court right. with your siblings in order to um, find out who's going to control mom and dad's assets. Yeah, so it's important. People that are listening today, it is important to have that plan together. I know we have heard it our whole life. You know, mm -hmm. put together your plan for whatever it is, you know, if that is mm -hmm. for school, if that is for your job or your career. But think about those that you leave behind and set a plan for them so you can continue those things you work for your entire life. Now, for us at um, the MP Group, we focus on referral partners. So great referral partners for us are businesses like business coaches, CPAs, website developers. For yourself, who would you say is a good referral partner for us to keep an eye out for to refer over to you? My best referral partners are attorneys, but I would love to see more referrals from CPAs and especially insurance agents. I'm always shocked at the number of insurance agents who are comfortable selling insurance, knowing that you have minor children and don't bother to have the, the will conversation because your client doesn't know. They don't know. And most and my best clients who come to me, they've had the conversation with an insurance agent. They've already had a conversation with their CPA and they've had a conversation with their financial planner. So I'm on the bottom of the totem pole because I'm the one who wraps it all up. Right. But but quite frankly, I don't mean to insult any of them. But if you're selling insurance to people and you're not explaining to them the importance of um, not having a will, especially when the beneficiary is a minor, um, that's a problem. And I, I think it should be a natural conversation if you're selling insurance. Okay. Um, okay. So yeah. we need to you keep business owners. Yeah. Business we... owners. If you're having relations with business owners, it's a natural conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those ones where, you know, we don't like to talk about it because then we talk about our mortality and death and, yes. you know, a lot of people will 
for whatever reason, because, you know, I've checked and, you know, not a lot of people make make it forever, you know. It's no. only one and or it's younger, yeah, Roderick, yeah, yeah. The, the, the black men are dying between 45 and 50. The cases that I've received in the past year, heart attacks yeah. between 45 and 50. Right, right. So you guys mm-hmm. got to get your plan together. Um, we got an idea of your target client, you know, who's a great referral partner for you. And we know right now you are where you are, but what does the future look like for you? What are you trying to get accomplished in the future? Are you ha- trying to have practices all over the country or are you just, what, what does that look like for you? Ooh, the future is so bright. I need shades. Oh, nice. <laughs> I love it. I love you, it. You probably heard that I was recently appointed as a one of Fulton County's probate court administrator. Mm-hmm. So that's a four-year mm-hmm. appointment. Congratulations. Um, and that's a huge job. Fulton County has a backlog of cases. So it's kind of like being the public defender for probate work. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of attorneys asking me to um, work with them on probate. I'm willing to train them. I don't know if I'm willing to work because I like the idea of having my own practice. Um, I would love uh, to train up on brand new lawyers to do a probate specifically because there aren't enough of African-Americans doing it. And I think that's why we have such a huge problem with probate in Georgia. You have this whole heirs property thing that I can come back and talk about Mm -hmm. another time, Mm -hmm. but it's that whole generation of land that gets um, purchased. I'll use the word purchase Mm -hmm. from investors because the generations didn't take care of transferring title. Um, So we need more probate attorneys. I'd like to write a book about the family side and um, and I will have offices in a couple of other states, I suspect at some point. Um, But I would like to speak on it more, actually, because I just don't feel like I know no one talks about the emotional aspect. I have family members who stop speaking for 10 years. Uh, somebody called me once and well, when dad died, we stopped speaking. And now that mom is dead, I'm, I'm done with him or her because, you know, yeah, they the blame each other now, and right. they're really mad at the dead person, but they don't know that they're really mad. It's that mm-hmm. whole projection thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I would like to do. And uh, I want to own my own building, of course. OK. And, uh, hey, listen, I understand that skyscraper. We'll talk about that another time. Yeah. <laughs> Now, of course, the purpose of this is to highlight you. Uh, We definitely appreciate you sharing uh, so people can learn more about Stephanie and, you know, what's those internal things that drive them to utilize your service. And uh, to finish things up, we always like to give you the last word. So what is it that you would like to share with everyone? poem, something straight off your your mind, <laughs> but whatever it is, uh, I'm going to give you the floor so you can share that that last uh, thought with everyone. Ooh, um, yeah, I'm not into poetry. I wish I was, but I guess, you know, falling in line with the experience I had in moot court, um, keep in mind that when you fear something, it does not mean you're not supposed to do it. It means that you're elevating to the next level and you need to push past it um, because you know, as business owners, Roger, I'm sure you know, we go through that the other day. Um, I signed up the most um, cases ever yesterday and my I started having these heart palpitations. <laughs> right, right, right. And then I had to remind and tell myself if God didn't think I could do it, he wouldn't put me here, hmm. make myself breathe. And then I kept going right. and I got past it. It lasted for all of um, two minutes. Um, but sometimes that 
paralyzes people mm -hmm. and shuts them down and causes also, I say, push past the fear. Fear is a good thing. Yes, yes. Be it's ready to get thing. into that rare air. Don't be afraid of it. Well, everybody, today we have Miss Stephanie Graham with Graham Estate Planning. Please reach out to her. We truly do appreciate you taking time out with us today. And any way we can help you, please just let us know. Uh, but we truly do appreciate you coming on with us today. Um, how can they get in contact with you? So the fastest way to get in contact with me, honestly, is on um, LinkedIn. Um, you know, just send me a message or a connection request. Uh, but I also have a website, grandmastateplanning.com. And um, LinkedIn, of course, Stephanie P. Graham. Um, and I am on Facebook as well with a business page and a personal page, Grandma State Planning, uh, Stephanie Graham. And um, But if you want to reach out to me for legal advice, of course, the best way is to call my office, 1-888-41-WILLS. Uh, That's 419-4557, and they will get you on the calendar um, within a two to three days to have a um, discovery call for those who are ready to take that next step. Um, but if you just want information, just follow me on LinkedIn and Facebook. I post about this stuff all the time. I post informal videos and the education is out there. But if you're ready to take that next step and invest in your planning and protecting your um, babies mm -hmm. and your loved ones, um, give us a call at 888-419-4557. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephanie. And uh, we look forward to helping. If we can help you in any way, just let us know. And to everyone out there listening, be kind to each other. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Roger. This All was right. fun. You guys have a great week. Thanks. You too.